Um, hello everyone, and welcome to the Shot Reverse Shot podcast end of year special. Uh, I'm Joe Gastineau, hello everyone, and uh, joining me as usual is Ed Davis, how are you doing sir? I'm doing very well, very festive, preparing for the, the Christmas season and uh, and New Year, which I'll be spending back in England, so I'm looking forward to that. Back in Blay, hey Ed? Yeah, for drinking, so I'll be in England in body, but I don't know where my mind will be. Hmm. Yeah, it is the festive spirit. It's also the time of year that uh, people, including uh, any old Tom, Dick or Harry on the internet, releases a totally meaningless, arbitrary list of what they thought are the ten best films of the year, and it's pointless. It's a pointless exercise, um, but we're doing it because... Uh, like we keep saying on this podcast we are the definitive resource for any kind of film info and anyone reading other lists might be kind of confused don't really know what to think so we're kind of just laying it down for you here right now yeah everyone else has opinions we have facts yeah we do what we're going to do is going to run through uh, the events of the year in film and also uh, talk about you know films that disappointed us uh, look at look at the uh, box office winners and losers uh, we're going to look at uh, the films that were just downright shit um, and then uh, run it down with what we think is the 10 best films of the year um, but yeah just to kind of to kick things off Ed 2013 has been and I think this is uh, a pretty kind of like widely held opinion or a consensus it's been bloody great hasn't it it has it's been a really really great year i mean i i um i joked on twitter a few a few months ago now uh around about the time gravity came out i noticed there was suddenly a big change in how people were considering the year because for the first I'd say eight or nine months, people seem to be complaining, saying, oh, it's a bit, you know, the summer was really drab and there weren't that many good films and it all seemed a bit sort of quiet. And then suddenly the last three months kicked in and it all seemed to turn around. At least that was the sense that I got. So mm. I joked, it says 2013 is the greatest year in the history of film if you ignore the first nine months. Hmm. Yeah, I, I remember kind of being in the middle of the summer and kind of being just kind of wholly depressed by what was on in kind of the summer blockbuster season I think that it's kind of misleading to say blockbuster season now because blockbusters kind of come out all year round now um, but the summer blockbuster season was especially poor um, and then I remember seeing all the reports coming up from Cannes and I was thinking Jesus this Cannes lineup's is pretty goddamn strong this, this is going to be a really big kind of end to the year um, and it, it really hasn't disappointed No I mean you can really see just in the 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 variety of uh, films that we've had come out, you know, I think you have something like Gravity, which is a big blockbuster that's actually hugely entertaining and really fun, and then you have something really small like Short Term Twelve, which I was a big fan of, mm. um, which was made for like ten pence and a bag of crisps or something. You know, it was made for hardly anything, but it's a really affecting drama, and you know, it really was a year in which it really kind of ran the gamut. You know, although there was good stuff kind of dotted all around. Yeah, um, it's been a big year for kind of uh, geek news. There's been uh, several occasions um, in 2013. Uh, sorry, oh yeah, that's where we are. 2013, um, where the internet has gone into uh, kind of like a, a, a kind of a, a typhoon of uh, nerd 
uh, jizz, I guess you could probably call it. And uh, mainly when uh, it was announced that J.J. Abrams, uh, saviour of the franchise, uh, <laughs> is taking on Star Wars, um, which is has led to about eight or nine months of some of the worst film journalism you could ever imagine. Yeah, I think it gets to the point where casting news for the film seems to be this person is a working actor, therefore they are being considered for Star Wars. Mm. With no kind of... uh, with no evidence to back that claim up. Because, I mean, really, everyone probably wants to be in Star Wars because it's such a cultural sort of touchstone for a lot of people and obviously it would be a big payday. Mm -hmm. But I think at a certain point they just seem to be drawing names from a hat. Like... Ryan Gosling being considered for Star Wars. Why not? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like the sort of thing he'd be really drawn to. I imagine they probably went to his agent because he's an actor mm-hmm. and they probably thought they could get him, but I doubt that he's being seriously considered. And basically everything... Or I think there have probably only been about three news stories about Star Wars this year that actually had any substance to them, which is J.J. Abrams being announced as director, uh, Michael Arndt leaving as writer... And that's about it. Oh, oh, and uh, <laughs> J- Jason Fleming inadvertently tweets a picture of the script that he's been given. Yeah, I think those are about the only sort of things. Everything else is just really um, nothing. Yeah, and yeah, it was kind of ludicrous. Um, but Disney have also revealed earlier in the year that they're going to do a Star Wars film every year, um, which kind of goes... Well, it proves the point that I've made several times about Star Wars that, you know, but at this point, even at this point with, what, six films, it's more shit than it is good. We've got, Mm. you know, the expanded universe is generally quite rubbish. Yeah, and I think that the way it seems to be structured is they said there's going to be, like, a proper Star Wars film in 2015, then there'll be a spin-off or sort of something that expands the universe in 16, then then episode 8 in... 2017 and they're just going to kind of keep alternating them which I think they're doing because they found such success with the Avengers Mm. and part of me because you know I used to read all the expanded universe novels as a kid and I was a huge Star Wars fan for most of my life and I still have a great deal of affection for a lot of that stuff Uh, part of me thinks you know that could be really cool because there's a lot because it's a big universe that people have been exploring for sort of 20 odd years at this point in terms of the expanded universe fiction and you know there's there's lots of different kinds of stories you can tell but part, part of me just thinks that they'll just end up telling sort of stories that no one's interested in or they'll just do like a Boba Fett story that's a bit dull mm. or you know, like they won't kind of go you know could we do a detective story set in the Star Wars universe or can we do like a, a romantic comedy or something it doesn't seem like they would actually experiment with it because there's so much money involved mm. that you can't really take a big risk uh, so it just be it just seems like it'd be really homogenous and boring yeah well speaking of homogenous boring uh, universe building um <laughs> it seems dc are getting on the uh, what did you call it the the marvelization of of kind of films that they are now after they did man of steel they decide they're going to do another one but they're going to bring batman into the fold and uh, the casting of um ben affleck in the role of batman slash bruce wayne again sent the internet into uh, apoplexy uh, I don't, mainly because people what i don't don't like you know Ben Affleck's chin is that what they dislike uh, but then we found out recently that they're now going to add Wonder Woman in there um, and yeah they're going for that whole kind of universe building aren't they now 
Yeah, and they, there's rumours that they'll bring in the Flash and maybe Aquaman, or you know, they basically seem to be saying that they'll be using it as a springboard for all of those individual films, and then a Justice League of America movie, which this kind of seems like that's what it is already. <laughs> you know, if you're introducing all of these people and they eventually form a super team, it kind of feels like they should just name it uh, Justice League already. But apparently they're not. They think it has to be have Batman in the title somewhere because uh, clearly those are the only ones that people are that really interested in. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of uh, Affleck, um, he had a very good start to the year. I mean, Argo, that was you know one of last year's uh, kind of big films, cleaned up at the Oscars despite being kind of quite far back in the pack at the start of award season. Uh, kind of came back to uh, well win just about everything. Yeah, that was a really surprising one because uh, as you say it opened really early in the year I think it opened in sort of September or October mm. and generally that's kind of seen as too early to be in serious consideration and then it just kind of didn't go away it just kept chugging along and did really well at the box office and then uh, I think of the kind of selection of films it was up against it was one of the more kind of crowd pleasing because it was about sort of historical event it was a thriller it was also about essentially in a sense the power of storytelling and the power of film which is something that you know the uh, the academy like to uh, to reward because they're all filmmakers and they want to believe that they can change the world mm-hmm. and that they're that important and that's a slightly cynical way i did enjoy argo i thought it was a good film yeah. um but you know i think that of the kind of films that it was the, the films that were nominated for best picture last year it was very safe yeah um other kind of news stories this year kind of we've already recorded individual episodes on on these two things but they've kind of stuck around since we did them uh uh kickstarter was big this year um in in ways that no one really expected we did an episode at the start of the year when it was announced there was a veronica mars kickstarter happening and that kind of came out of the blue and they hit their target very quickly and we did an episode about it and you know it was kind of we kind of thought well this could be the start of something but very very quickly uh, we had another couple of campaigns which kind of uh, caused a bit of a rumpus. Uh, first was uh, Zach Braff's Kickstarter campaign, um, and then later in the year we had Spike Lee's uh, Kickstarter campaign. Zach Braff's, in particular, had uh, raised a few heckles um, because it seemed—I uh, don't want to be harsh on Zach Braff—he's—he seems like a nice guy. I mean, I don't like Garden State. I think I've kind of gone on record saying that before, but the whole campaign seemed a little disingenuous to me. Yeah, because I think a lot of the a lot of the the things he was saying about the goals he needed to hit were like, you know, if we don't hit a certain amount, then I can't have Jim Parsons in it. And you kind of think, well, I thought you guys were quite good friends. Wouldn't he uh, or agree to just be in it, like because you're friends and you wouldn't be able to pay him too much? You know, there were just all these kind of weird qualifiers for why he needed certain amounts of money for the film. Mm. But also, you know he was actually acting he was asking for a very small amount of money to make this film compared to like what he earned in his last year working on scrubs now i don't know what zach brath's upkeep is Mm -hmm. i don't know you know how much he has to pay but you kind of get the feeling he probably does have a couple of billion kind of squirreled away because Mm -hmm. he's not someone who it's not like he's constantly working and constantly hustling constantly hustling for jobs did you you say a couple of billion Million. Oh, I, was, oh God, I, I don't mean he's got billions, but yeah, he's definitely no. got. I reckon he's got a couple of million down the back of his couch. Yeah, so you kind of got the sense that if he really wanted to make this sequel, then 
he could just kind of put his own money into it and he seemed to be using Kickstarter as a way of essentially getting people to pay for a passion project he wanted to do which was kind of in stark contrast to the Veronica Mars Kickstarter which didn't get half the sort of blowback that uh, that that that, that uh, Zach Rath did because there it was people paying for something that they had been actively asking for for the better part of five or six years. Mm. So uh, it wasn't a case of just someone going, "I want to make my next film, you pay me, and you'll get nothing from it." It was like saying, "We've tried to make this film for like six or seven years. We know that you all really want it. This is the only way we're actually going to be able to make it." Mm. Yeah. The other thing we talked about in another podcast earlier this year, a bit more recently, um, that's been a kind of dominant news story of the year is how distribution models are changing. And and even since we recorded the episode like uh, six weeks ago or however long it was ago, uh, you know, new things keep developing. Like new shows are announced on Netflix. Netflix are now going into documentary programming and they're doing animation and and then other uh, kind of streaming services are doing the same thing and and that whole idea that we base the episode around of Kevin Spacey saying it's now no longer film it's no no longer TV, it's no longer uh, kind of serial drama, it's just content, it's just stories that's, you know, fast becoming a, a kind of reality yeah, and to tie it in with the thing we were talking earlier about the Marvelization of, of cinema, you're seeing that with Netflix partnering up with Marvel and Disney to make TV series based on uh, some of their characters. Like there's going to be a Daredevil miniseries and there's going to be a, uh, a Luke Cage miniseries. And I think that that's really interesting because essentially it's their way of admitting these characters probably aren't enough to sustain a series on their own, but saying that trying to find a middle ground that allows them to you know, make stuff that they know people want to watch because they're fans of the characters, mm. but without them having to invest, you know, hundreds of million dollars making the film and then hundreds of millions of dollars marketing it. Instead, they pay a smaller amount, put it out on Netflix and, you know, with probably a lower marketing push as well and still get to use those properties and still get them out there. And you you kind of can't imagine that happening as, as little as sort of three or four years ago like for so long people kept trying to make a daredevil movie happen again and you know if you'd said oh we're going to make daredevil but it's going to be a mini series that's going to go up on a streaming service mm. like a few years ago people were like oh so you've kind of given up then <laughs> you you've given up on doing anything worthwhile with it now it's like ooh, this sounds really exciting yeah yeah i agree um what were the kind of the winners and losers of the box office this year? This year we had um, quite a kind of remarkable string of flops. I mean, am I right in thinking that over the summer didn't we have a few flops that contributed? To, they they kind of went straight into the like top ten of biggest flops of all time. Yeah, there were some really really huge ones. R.I.P.D. was probably one of the biggest. It cost a hundred and thirty million dollars to make. It grossed thirty three million dollars. Wow. In the U.S., uh, it then made. A, a whopping $44 million elsewhere in the world for a final total of $78 wow. million. And, you know, the, the rule of thumb with these things is uh, however much the film costs, it usually needs to earn twice that much to pay back the marketing budget. So RIPD really needed to earn about $300 million and it fell somewhat short. Mm-hmm. Uh, a recent one on a smaller scale, Spike Lee's Old Boy, cost $30 million to make, grossed $2.1 million, wow. uh, which is barely uh barely more than what the original made 10 years ago um so that's uh that's not been a success um 
there was also, in, in, in a sense, it was a very good year for original sci-fi in that there were a slew of original sci-fi films that got released. You had Oblivion, Elysium, Pacific Rim, and After Earth. Unfortunately, between them, those films cost $555 million, mm. and they grossed 343 Wow. In But worldwide, they made $1.2 most of which came from Pacific Rim. Yeah. So... Um, so those films, they all just about squeaked through, but they were in terms of their domestic hauls, they're all uh, pretty sizable flops, with all of them costing at least a hundred million and making less than that. Mm. Um, who were the big winners this year at the box office? Uh, well, the, as of the time of recording, the number one film is Iron Man three, mm-hmm. which uh, is unsurprising because it's a big Marvel film and it's essentially the sequel to the Avengers more than anything else. Yeah. You know, I think people kind of treat it as a follow-up to that film rather than to Iron Man 2. Hunger Games Catching Fire has done amazingly well, particularly worldwide. It's it's really improved on what the the first one did. Um, Gravity, I think, was the the big surprise hit mm. because was that as high as number uh, three? Uh, it's I think it's number five. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's number five at the moment, so it's doing very very well. That wow. one has made six hundred and fifty million dollars worldwide. And uh, it's a big surprise because I think in the lead up to it being released, I think people were like, you know, it cost 100 million, so it's quite pricey. You know, it might make that back in America and then it'll, uh, you know, it'll sort of make most of its money overseas. And then it opened 50 million and then just kept doing really well on the weekends and was a real event cinema that people wanted to go and see. So it ended up making over 250 in the US alone, which at one point people thought would be like a reason a, a realistic amount for it to earn everywhere mm. so so that one was like a huge surprise uh there were a slew of really big comedy hits this year um that kind of they didn't come out of nowhere but they were still surprising in just how well they did uh we had identity thief which made 150 million dollars what we're the yeah we're the we're the millers which made oh no sorry identity thief made 134 million we're the millers made 150 million the Heat made 159 million, and This Is the End made 101 million. Wow! So those are all R-rated comedies. They all uh, showed tremendous legs. You know, they opened really well and then just kept going. And uh, so that that was a, a slew of, of films that just did hugely well. So it was a really good year for comedy, mm-hmm. yeah, cr- commercially, not necessarily critically. Um, uh, the Conjuring was a huge R-rated horror hit, despite being the softest R-rated film anyone had ever seen. Yeah. Uh, made 137 million. Uh, the Butler uh, by Lee Daniels. Lee Daniels, the Butler, just in case anyone was confused with the short film from 1915. Yeah. Um, made 116 million dollars in the US, which, considering the Paperboy, the last film Lee Daniels made, made 600 thousand dollars in the US, is uh, is a bit of an improvement. Um, although it's easily his worst film. So. What the Paperboy? No, the butler. Oh, I was going to say the paperboy is is well, it's kind of it's the kind of the sweatiest, most lurid film I think I've seen for a long time. But it's no, dreadful, the, the, but also amazing. No, the but the butler's just boring. Oh, okay. It doesn't it doesn't have a sweaty insanity to it. It's just very sort of straightforward and biopic, and you know, covering fifty years and all these historical figures keep flitting in and out. So it's like Forrest Gump, but less funny. Mm. Um. And then, sort of towards the end of the year, you know, we just had Frozen, uh, which is currently sitting at 191 million dollars, uh, which makes it one of the biggest 
Disney non non Pixar Disney hits in years, and it's probably going to end up somewhere in the sort of two hundred and fifty to three hundred million dollar range. So that one's just like just in the end of the year, squeaking in another huge hit. Mm. So so it's been a good year. Didn't um, Despicable Me uh, make a ridiculous a despicable amount of money? It did. Yes, it made three hundred and sixty seven million dollars in America wow. alone. And Despicable Me was not very good at all, was it? Uh, I haven't seen the first one. I've, I've seen the second one, and I did enjoy the second one. But, you, yeah, the first one was uh, made $250 million and was a surprise hit. Right, okay. But uh, the second one just, like, obviously converted that goodwill into huge, huge success. Um, bit of a, like, kind of a, a film that we didn't mention there in, in the box office flops, but I, we've both seen it in the last couple of days, and I'd like to talk about it. Um, because it kind of forms part of 2000, 2013's rich film tapestry. Um, but The Lone Ranger, um, the Gore Verbinski uh, reimagining of the old radio serial, um, which came out and uh, died uh, at the box office. Um, and kind of, I think, uh, Johnny Depp and Jerry Bruckheimer came out and and a lot of people are saying, oh, they're, they're saying that the critics... Um, I think there was a misinterpretation. A lot of people were saying that Johnny Depp and Jerry Bruckheimer come out and blamed critics for the film's failure, um, which kind of isn't true. If you kind of look at what they actually said, they were basically saying that critics in America were reviewing the budget and the troubles that the production had rather than reviewing the film, which is actually a fair comment. They weren't saying critics uh, you know, have kind of gone against this film because we know that's not true. Uh, you know, Transformers, not critically well received, but it does okay at the box office. Um, but Lone Ranger uh, also fed into a couple of other news stories this year in the fact that Quentin Tarantino came out and said it was one of his favourite films and got fucking pilloried for it online, <laughs> uh, which is weird thing. But I, we we both saw it this weekend, um, and it's it's a hot mess. Let's not be around the bush, but it's also loads of fun. It is. I think it's. You know, I think um, the the thing about them talking about the budget is uh, is very true in terms of it's it's kind of like Heaven's Gate, really. I mean, I I'm not a huge fan of Heaven's Gate, but when that film came out, it seemed like everyone just talked about how much it cost and how much of a mess it was. And it was the same with The Lone Ranger. Everyone talked about how it, you know, there were all these news stories about it running over budgets and how Gorbavinsky wanted to have CGI werewolves and he had to cut them, and they had to cut a sequence in which a train was destroyed or in which a different train was destroyed because there's a couple of trains that get destroyed in the mm. film um, and you know so there were all these stories about it and when the film came out that seemed to be all anyone was talking about and uh, there are things in The Lone Ranger that are worth kind of discussing and dissecting critically sort of in the idea that it's a film about the way in which the image of Native Americans are kind of exploited for uh exploited for entertainment which is an interesting point to make but is kind of harmed by the fact you have a white guy playing the Indian (laughs) Um, yeah he he tried as well to say well my grandma's grandma perhaps was Native American Uh, I'm not buying that Johnny yeah and also didn't he like go to a tribe and got like blessed or something like that so he did kind of really kind of give it some legitimacy Mm. and it it, it kind of uh, stank of desperation to try and assuage the accusations of it being racially insensitive um, and I don't think his performance is I don't think it's uh, you know it's not like he's blacking up and like doing a really kind of racist stereotype 
but it is one that plays into a very stereotypical depiction of an Indian, albeit a very positive one. Yeah. But it's still you still find it very hard, especially when you know they show a flashback and it's an actual Native American playing him. Yeah. Um, it just and and you know he's Johnny Depp and you know he's not a Native American. It kind of really does hammer home the fact that he is white. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's it, it feels like a film where you kind of have to look past a lot of things mm-hmm. to kind of really enjoy it. But I you know it is as like you say it's a lot of fun. Uh, when I watched it today, I was watching it on uh, Apple TV and streaming it from my laptop, and my laptop kept freezing, so and it kept starting it again at the same point, and it was at the start of the first train sequence in the first ten minutes of the film. So right. I watched that whole sequence about four times, <laughs> and I was perfectly happy to because that is amazing, you know. And and Gore Verbinski as a director is, he's a very inventive kind of blockbuster director. He's he seems to just. Uh, take great joy in coming up with insane set pieces and then just kind of letting them fly and uh, there's a there's a bunch of them in the Lone Ranger that are just so much fun to watch and it's it is a really funny film as well which I think a lot of people don't give it credit for there is a nice vein of sort of deadpan humor running throughout it um, and yeah I think it, it, it's a film that got a really it got a really bad rep um, for the wrong reasons I mean people can I have no problem with people going after it for the sort of racial insensitivity of it and the fact it kind of undermines the most serious point it tries to make. But it is a, a it's a very fascinating film that just kind of got ignored completely. And the thing that's really funny about the uh, people going after Quentin Tarantino for putting it on his list is it seemed to come from people that hadn't actually seen it. Yeah. Based on the uh, based on the box office numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was surprised to see him say it, but at that point I hadn't seen it, so I probably, I just kept stumbling into anything, uh, and then I watched it, and I was like, oh, actually, I can I can kind of see why someone would go for this. And his reasoning was very good. He was like, the opening's amazing, the middle bit's a bit slack, and then the end's great. It's like, how can anyone say that film's dreadful? See, it isn't dreadful. It's, it's fucking better than a lot of other films. That it's better than the last three parts of the Caribbean film. Yeah, and I think it's it's trying to do a lot more interesting things. Um, you know, Gore Verbinski is a very interesting and very weird director. <laughs> he seems to have a lot of very unusual uh, approaches to just the way he shoots action and the way he stages stuff. And his sense of humour, as evidenced in Rango, is is really offbeat and unusual. And uh, you know, I think that comes through a lot in it. And it's also it's a weird kind of quasi remake of Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. Mm. which I think not enough people are talking about, but that's kind of what it feels like, right down to the fact that Tonto says lines that are almost verbatim things that nobody says in Dead Man. Like I say, Gore Verbinski is very strange as a filmmaker, and I've got a huge amount of time for the film he made very early in his career. I don't know if it was first or kind of second or what, but um, Mouse Hunt, which uh, kind of people laugh when I say Mouse Hunt, but it's a it's a slapstick really dark kids film and he he basically makes slapstick action films on a massive scale yeah there's a certain sort of rube goldberg kind of quality to a lot of his action set pieces like uh in the first train sequence in the lone ranger the fact that tonto and and uh ranger i forget what his real name is john reed uh are sort of uh handcuffed together with those manacles and then from there just trying to extrapolate different ways in which they can use that chain in different scenarios yeah is uh is is just really you know kind of fascinating his mind kind of has he kind of has a sort of weird joe dante-ish quality to him in that regard i think he's someone who grew up watching a lot of cartoons um you know really likes to use 
the tools of live action filmmaking to kind of recreate that sense of sort of elasticity and of just kind of planning things out and also you know in terms of just his visual sense he's very good at just showing you everything and not kind of doing lots of fast cutting he's very good at creating spatial relationships and awareness and uh, that really fits something like the lone ranger which is obviously kind of being presented as something of a a big budget modern take on an old-fashioned format Mm. yeah yeah so that was a film that didn't do particularly well and we liked it um let's talk about some films that perhaps did do well that we were very disappointed by the one that kind of sticks out to me um was uh, star trek 2 into darkness i believe the subtitle of that was um i really enjoyed the first star trek i'm not a star trek fan at all but uh, i really enjoyed the first star trek it was very vibrant it was very kind of dynamic it was very it was very kind of uh propulsive it was fun it was fresh um and star trek 2 was trying to just do that again really hard and just not quite doing it enough yeah but and also sort of cramming in sort of references to khan and the wrath of khan which i think harmed the film by comparison because the wrath of khan's a really well made well constructed science fiction film and every kind of uh reference that it made or every element that it stole wholesale really felt uh it really felt cheap mm. you know like they were really relying on the older film to kind of bolster the new one and just kind of treading over old ground but not only treading over old ground of the old films but of the previous film in this rebooted series because mm. like they they had a lot of the same character beats and it really felt as if none of the characters had moved on at all from where they were at the start of the first film it's just that now they happen to have a ship mm. and it was it had some of the worst foreshadowing I've ever seen in a modern film where there's just a scene and then they're like hey Bones what are you doing with that Tribble over there and he's like well I'm just injecting it with this thing to see if I can bring it back to life because it's dead oh yeah that's nice and they move on and then <laughs> oh lo and behold later Kirk dies oh hang on what was I doing with that Tribble earlier it's the worst bit of foreshadowing I've seen since can I use this power loader to move some boxes do you know what I mean um, anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, Only God Forgives was a strange one because I'm still not sure if I was disappointed by that film because I'm still not sure what the fuck to think of it. Because sometimes I was watching it and I was thinking this film is genuinely amazing, and then the next minute I was thinking, what the fuck is this? Yeah, I was disappointed in that I didn't love or hate it, which has seemed to be the response that it had on the internet. People were either this film is astonishing or this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. Mm. And I kind of watched it and I thought. There are parts of this I love. I love the way it looks. I love mm. the the music. And I love the whole sort of vibe and atmosphere of it. But I just don't give a shit about the story at all. Mm. Kristen Scott uh, Thomas was uh, terrifying in that. She was uh, seemed to be channeling Jackie Weaver from Animal Kingdom. Yes, uh, yes. She was she was very uh, very over the top, but in a way that was kind of kind of delicious and really suited the sort of the vibe of the film. Mm. Yeah, um, I was kind of disappointed by Elysium. I mean, I'm I was not a huge fan of uh, District Nine, but I liked it. Uh, I didn't go nuts for it like everyone else did. But Elysium, I watched uh, the other day, and it just felt a bit flat and a bit tired. It just it didn't seem like there was much spark going on there. And I think that kind of that seems to have been the kind of the critical consensus of that film as well that it kind of promised much but didn't quite deliver. 
did it seem like it got lost with because it had a considerable considerably bigger budget than District 9 which was made mm. sort of very modestly do you think it kind of got lost in the desire to make it like this big effects laden thing that maybe the ideas got swamped by the effects uh, I'm not entirely sure because I uh, District 9 feels like a much bigger budget film than it is just because mm. it uses those effects so well um, it does it, you know it, just, it doesn't seem like he's kind of moved on and there's nothing in Elysium that you can't get from District 9 and that he hasn't done better in District 9 um, and there's the really weird thing that they give on everyone who lives on Elysium this this kind of uh, utopian kind of paradise in the sky where all the rich people live everyone's got the same kind of weird accent and it's mm. very difficult to take seriously Jodie Foster talking like she's been operated by a kind of puppet and dubbed over in kind of RP. It's really weird. And um, and then we're going to have a bit of a kind of disagreement here, Ed, because my biggest disappointment of the year was the film Pacific Rim. Yeah, whereas I, well, I didn't love it, but it was my favourite blockbuster of the year up until I saw Lone Ranger, which I think it's kind of... It's kind of oh, oh I actually know Gravity is the the favourite one, but mm. you know I think it's I I really really enjoyed Pacific Rim whilst at the same time um, like if if you go and read my the review I wrote of it there's a lot of me kind of caveats there's a lot of caveats as to why I enjoyed it like I realised the dialogue is shit mm-hmm. that the I I joke in in my review that the character played by um, Charlie Hunnam is so bland that he might as well just be called Hero main character. <laughs> um, yeah, and to the extent that I was watching it, and about an hour in, I realised I'd forgotten what his name was, because <laughs> <laughs> um, it was like I was watching it, it was like he's—I know he's the main guy, mm. but I couldn't tell you. And then I remembered it was—it was Raleigh, which also is just a name that you know. Why would you name anyone that? Uh, it's not as memorable as Stack of Pentecost, which is no. just ridiculous. Um, but you know, I did really get as, as someone who grew up watching a lot of Power Rangers and, and that sort of stuff, you know, there's just something that appeals to me about giant robots beating the shit out of giant things. And uh, and, and I really enjoyed it on that level and there was a there was a lot there was a very geeky kind of enthusiasm to it that I, I really liked. Whilst at the same time realising like the Lone Ranger there were a lot of things I just had to overlook in order to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, and I felt that way as well. I mean I, I wasn't going in uh, expecting kind of Chinatown or anything and I too mm. am very much drawn to the idea of giant robots punching giant monsters in the face um, but everyone accepts that film is um, kind of poorly written and the script is uh, perhaps a little formulaic but I just could not get past the fact that every single character every single dramatic beat every single plot uh, point every single element of the script was a cliche Mm. and it was a lazy tired boring cliche to the point where halfway through the film I was like is he sending up action films in the way that Airplane does like has he (laughs) has he bought the rights to another script about giant robots and he's kind of satirizing it and then halfway through I was thinking no this is the script Every, every single bit of it is there was nothing about it that you could not telegraph two pages on and mm. for me the action didn't compensate for that um, and uh, yeah me and uh, Ryan Finnegan friend of the show went to see it and we kind of sat in a 
in a cinema on our own <laughs> uh, on a kind of like a Monday lunchtime. We watched this and like we were both really awkward. We were both looking forward to it and we both really awkwardly watched it and then kind of halfway through we kind of both started laughing at the same point. And I think, you know, you don't want to turn to someone and say, is this shit? Because <laughs> I think it's shit. Um, but And then we kind of just laughed awkwardly through the film and then at the end he just turned to me and said, well, that was a turd. And I was like, well... <laughs> Yeah, it was, and I, I didn't want to say it because I loved the idea, um, but I, I, I just could not get past the fact that, you know, it seems to have been written by an algorithm. It, it's written by the computer that gives you Netflix recommendations. <laughs> yeah, I, and I just could not get past that. I think it kind of goes back to something we talked about on a on a very old podcast where we were talking about we were talking about the film Avatar, and 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 we were talking about how everyone was everyone even. You know, huge proponents of those films are saying, "Well, the script's not up to much, but you know, it's a mind kind of boggling spectacle." It's that same principle that there's a point where you can say, "Well, the the focus of the film is effects, and the focus of the film is spectacle, and the focus of the film's action," and then they're saying, "Writing doesn't matter," mm. and that's why I felt Pacific Rim was. They were just like, "Fuck this, it doesn't matter." Yeah, I think that those are all fair points to make. You know, I, I still really, really enjoyed it for the spectacle and the action and stuff and there were some scenes in it that I did I, yeah, I, the, the, the thing that was interesting for me was that the scene that was most effective to me was the film that had no dialogue which is the scene of the young Mako Mori running through the streets of the, that city that's being destroyed by the, the kaiju mm. which I thought was a scene that worked really well and it actually in a weird way added depth to the, the Rinko Kikuchi's performance by, you know, suggesting all of this trauma that she actually wasn't really portraying very well. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that it was something that worked very well in sort of a visceral way, but didn't, you know, necessarily have that much in the interesting content. In, in that regard, it kind of reminded me of something like Enter the Void, which is a film that's, you know, the, the content and the subject matter of Enter the Void is banal to the nth degree, but the, the, the form and the technical aspects of it are, are astonishing. And I think that uh, Pacific Rim is kind of in the same sort of vein, although obviously not featuring uh, uh, hardcore sex or an on-screen abortion. Hmm. Although you, you probably feel, feel the whole film is an on-screen abortion, but, you know, it's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, let's quickly run over the films that we thought were the worst of the year. I mean, we do have a bona fide winner that we've talked about before. We'll reveal at the end of this list. But um, this year did see some absolute turds. Um, one of the worst, I think we've both seen it recently, was Man of Steel, This the Superman uh, reboot. Because obviously we need a reboot after, what was it, seven years ago we already had this. Um, oh, what a fucking stream of hot shit. Yeah, I think that there was there was so much about that film that just from the very opening it just felt wrong. Mm. Like when it's showing that super advanced civilization on Krypton and it just looks like Avatar, but they've turned the the, the uh, color down. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like and uh, and and when it actually gets to Earth and there's that sort of slightly interesting stuff about his like really young childhood, but then <laughs> they every every uh, point of the Superman story they seem to tell, they, they basically seem to not want to be telling the Superman story, mm. if you see what I mean like, the whole thing my friend Lewis uh, Davis no relation, uh, but a lovely guy uh, pointed out on Facebook that the the whole point of Superman is he's meant to be a god who is instilled with a love of humanity by just sort of 
having a nice Midwestern family who kind of raise him and tell him that you need to be good. Whereas in the film, the message that Kevin Costner seems to give to his son is that you need to hide your ability even if people die, mm. which is not a very superman thing to say. And also, it completely inverts the most poignant moments of the Richard Donner Superman, which is where Jonathan Kent dies of a heart attack and uh, Clark is overcome with grief at the fact that he has all of these great abilities but he can't do anything about it. And in mm. the film, in, in The Man of Steel, uh, Jonathan Kent dies because he stops uh, Clark from running at him and saving him and using his powers to do something that he absolutely could do. Yeah, rescue With, a dog from a hurricane. Yeah, and like, there's just there's no sort of logic behind why he would stop him. It's not noble, it just makes him seem like a prick. Mm. And then, like, the, 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 there were elements of the film that, you know, I thought Henry Cavill was, you know, pretty solid in the central role, although I think it's very telling that in the kind of trivia about it, one of the things they were most concerned about was his shirtless scenes and yeah. the fact that he went on a really extreme diet so he got down to 2% body fat so he'd really look like Superman and it was a film that seemed really concerned with looking like a Superman film but it just didn't feel like they had any sort of real grasp on who the character was right down to, you know, everyone goes on about the fact that in the final scene literally millions of people would die (laughs) because of the fights that uh, Superman and Zod have which you know if you're really Superman what you do is you kind of take Zod and you fly with him to the Arctic when no one will get hurt Mm. Uh, so he doesn't do that he just completely destroys it but it's also just really boring that action which is Mm. two invincible men punching each other has no weight whatsoever and it doesn't seem to hurt them at all and then it ends in the most anticlimactic way which is he breaks Zod's neck when, yeah. when right up until that point, it seems like he can't hurt him at all. But apparently, Kryptonians have really fragile necks. <laughs> yeah, when it suits them. As um, evidenced by Christopher Reeve in real life. Oh, too soon, too soon. <laughs> I mean, I, I was going to say that like, the great thing that the Donner thing does, the Donner Superman does, is it makes an invincible alien vulnerable in a very human way. And they don't seem to manage that. And I don't want to say that it's because Zack Snyder isn't a good director, um, but it's probably because Zack Snyder isn't a good director. Yeah, I think that's very much the case. And just the the, the tone of it is so serious. And the, the whole one of the things that the, the Donner films do really well is that there is a lightness of touch to it. It does show Superman rescuing a cat, and mm. it does have just this kind of sense of fun to it when there's no fun. To Man of Steel, it's just kind of awe, but, but in awe at these kind of effects that don't even look that good. Like the first scene where he learns to fly, oh, it God. looks it looks like in in Cape Canaveral in Florida, there is a thing where you can you sit on like a green screen block and they take a picture of you and then they make it look like you're sitting in the International Space Station by just getting you to kind of hold a pose that makes it look like you're floating and yeah. that is what Man of Steel's flying sequences <laughs> looked like it looked like they were lying Henry Cavill on a block and getting him to rock from side to side and they looked they looked less convincing than the ones in the Donna Superman and that's nearly 40 years old yeah, and that's just a man on a pair of wires yeah, there was just no. It was so charmless. It was such mm. an utterly charmless, boring film, and it was just so. There's just no fun to it, you know. Mm. And, like you didn't even have, you know, like the same thing. I think you can say about the Nolan Batman films is they are quite se- self-serious. 
Mm. But at least there, the action scenes are physical, and you can actually there's a, there's a sense of excitement to thinking, "Ooh, look, a real person is doing a real thing," whereas yeah. all this was was CGI men punching each other and knocking down CGI buildings, apparently slaughtering thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. But no, it, showing no care for the lives of those thousands of people. Yeah, and uh, Snyder attempts to um, kind of gloss over his kind of filmmaking deficiencies and his usual tics of kind of slowing the the footage down, then speeding it up again, then slowing it down by attempting to mallock it up at any point. Where mm. by kind of, <laughs> but he he doesn't seem to understand what Terence Malick does. <laughs> he just just kind of apes the style without actually understanding the content. Yeah, it's just fields of wheat, to quote Woody mm. Allen. You yeah, know, that seems yeah. to be what he just kind of goes for, you know, at any given moment. Yeah. Um, other films that I saw, I saw, and then we'll get back to you, um, I, uh, that I hated, uh, a film called Dealing with Idiots, a very low-budget film, uh, directed and written by Jeff Garlin, um, and the cast made me think, oh, this will be good. It's got Bob Odenkirk in it, J.B. Smoove's in it, Richard Kind's in it, uh, Fred Willard's in it, Gina Gershon's in it. Uh, it's kind of an improvised uh, comedy about uh, parents watching their kids' baseball games, and it is so awful. It's just really aimless, kind of stupid wank you know kind of improvisation is 90% useless and 10% kind of magic and that's basically a film made with the 90% um, just rubbish awful I can't believe how bad it was uh, Sharknado which uh, obviously was a uh, huge uh, kind of internet meme this year um, but an utterly cynical devoid of any kind of fun 90 minutes just kind of awful even for a film a film called Sharknado where a man jumps into a shark's mouth with a chainsaw should be fun but it wasn't just an absolutely joyless affair um, another film uh, Bachelorette which seemed to be a kind of uh, a complete bridesmaids knockoff without any of the charm or should I say this and this will say how bad it was the sophistication of bridesmaids it did oh, wow. not have an ounce of that and it basically took a lot of actors uh, that you like like Kirsten Dunst and I can't remember the girl's name she's in uh, Masters of Sex Lizzie Kaplan Lizzie Kaplan and basically makes them just horrible people and not in a good way um, but yeah I, that was an awful film as well what, what have you got that you hated? Uh, my least favourite film of the year for much of the year until very recently when I've been doing this catch up and sort of looking at some of the dregs was uh, Pain and Gain the Michael Bay film which we did a whole episode about although I have since reconsidered it and while I don't think it's a good film I do I do appreciate it more having watched something like Man of Steel because Man of Steel is a film that has all this money behind it and it tries nothing whereas Pain and Gain is a film that was made for a relatively few frugal budget of like 30 million dollars or something and I've read enough criticism of it talking about it, the idea that it's a satire to think that, okay, it's trying to be a satire. I don't think it works as a satire. I think it uh, it identifies with its characters too much and that ultimately it kind of loses any kind of satirical bent in sort of its sort of dick and fart jokes, mm-hmm. uh, of which there are way too many for it to have any sort of real effect. But I do think that it... It it, it 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 tries for something and it doesn't succeed, but at least it kind of has these enough interesting elements to it. But I really I really found it kind of morally quite repugnant, and I really didn't like that <laughs> film. But but you know, in in light of some of the other films that we've been watch I've watched recently, I do kind of appreciate that I don't like it for sort of philosophical reasons. I appreciate that I can understand that why people would like it. Hmm. 
Well, for the first time in the history of this podcast, and we've done three end-of-year specials, um, we are going to actually crown an official shot reverse shot worst film of the year. Um, and it was a pretty much unanimous decision between two of us. Um, <laughs> a film that I decided to watch on a whim and then told you how bad it was and then in the spirit of kind of camaraderie um, and not wanting to leave a man behind, <laughs> you watched it. And boy, oh boy, are you glad you did. Uh, we're talking about the film Movie 43, uh, which is a kind of a portmanteau film, um, which attempts to be a kind of Kentucky Fried movie style, uh, kind of um, scatological um, comedy uh, with lots of little, lots of casts and lots of different uh, um, kind of directors doing little bits. But essentially, it boils down to. 95 minutes of watching actors you like make you want to kill yourself. Yeah, you said it was a, an act of camaraderie. I think it's more like The Ring. It's like <laughs> yeah. you, you watched it and then you want you need someone else to watch it so that you haven't suffered alone. Um, yeah, it's absolutely dreadful. I mean, it's it's kind of jaw-dropping to kind of describe it to someone because if you start describing some of the sketches in it, people will think you're insane. Mm. Like the opening sketch of the film... Uh, which is, you know, the the the, uh, the framing device is it is that Dennis Quaid is a uh, he's a film director who's trying to sell a script to Greg, Greg Kinnear and he says it's got is this uh, film that's going to be a real Oscar contender and then it shows the first sketch which is Kate Winslet going on a date with Hugh Jackman who is a man who has testicles for a throat mm. and that's it that's the entire yeah. premise doesn't really do anything with it mm. uh, and then it ends. And then it goes on to another sketch, which I think is the second one, the one with Chris Pratt and Anna, Anna Faris. Yeah, where she asks him to shit on her face. Yes. Um, yeah, which again is about as far... The, the thing that's annoying about Movie 43 is that there are a couple of the sketches where you think, in bare hands, there's an interesting idea here. Like that mm. one, there's a question of like, well, how far would you go for someone that you really, really care for? But yeah. then it just becomes about Chris Pratt eating Mexican food and taking diarrhea medicine uh, and then trying to hold it in for a uh, a romantic moment. Um, you you just you're just making me relive it in my head because uh, the thing <laughs> is is that like you could run through every single sketch in movie 43 and explain it to people. You could say, well, uh, Johnny Knoxville and um, and Sean William Scott kidnap a leprechaun played by Gerard Butler and it's a kind of uh, like a bad cop good cop interrogation action film and you say oh that sounds quite good but it's fucking awful you say that oh there's uh, Justin Long and Emma Stone doing and uh, Jason Sudeikis doing uh, superhero blind dating oh that sounds funny it isn't it's not funny Hugh Jackman's got a ball bag on his throat it's not funny it, it sounds like it should be and it's not and the, the thing is about like Kentucky Fried Movie some of the sketches were like 30 seconds these go on for like eight to ten minutes each. They're interminable. Oh, what's that one at the end with the anima- animated cat and cat, um, yeah. oh, who's oh, who is it in it? Is it Elizabeth? Elizabeth Banks. Oh my fucking Christ! That's horrible. It's it, and I just watched it. I've got a, a general rule that I follow, and it's it, you could call it a code. That I'll, I'll always watch a film to the end, no matter how bad it is. And movie forty three really did push me to the very limit of that. That last sketch also is by James Gunn. Who's someone mm. I really like, and that's yeah. I yeah think like I said, it's pe- people you like who make you want to kill yourself. Yeah, between that and uh, for the Dark World, he's got two films this year where he directed a scene in the credits that just made everyone go what. Yeah. 
Um, but he also, but yeah, the, um, the, 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 the one kind of sketch that you kind of think almost works is the one for me with Liev Schreiber and Naomi Watts, where they're a couple yeah. who homeschool their son, which means including bullying him. Yeah. Which is just such a strong comedic premise, but is undone by the fact that Liev Schreiber and Naomi Watts are not funny. No. <laughs> and that's If Elizabeth of... Banks had been in that one, um, with Jason Sudeikis, that would have really worked. But again, yeah. they they all felt like SNL digital shorts and like the ones that were rejected and they put it together in a in a in a feature. Yeah, and but the I think what you said about the ones that are thirty seconds long, the only one that's kind of actually genuinely funny is probably that one about how machines have children in them. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is about which is about uh, two minutes long, so it's still slightly too long for the premise. Mm. But it's actually it gets over and done with, and it's not too painful. Whereas everything else in there is like they establish the premise, do nothing with it, and then keep going with it for about five or six minutes. Yeah. And part of me really wants to see the sketch that Bob Odenkirk did, where which was dropped from the film, uh, which featured Anton Yelchin as a necrophiliac. And the reason I want to see it is because apparently it was dropped from the film after it tested badly with audiences, but. I don't trust that audience <laughs> because everything else apparently tested well with them. So I yeah. now think that that must be an amazing sketch. Yeah, I've just had uh, the Stephen Merchant Halle Berry sequence come back to me where oh. they go on a date and they, they do a sequence of escalating dares which, again, starts out reasonably funny. Like, there's a bit where Stephen Merchant dares Halle Berry to go and blow out a blind boy's birthday candles that was funny and then by the end when um, Stephen Merchant has had plastic surgery to make himself Chinese (laughs) and Halle Berry has got tits that are like the size of like three medicine balls each and she's getting them (laughs) out and stirring guacamole with them Ah, oh, Jesus Christ! That's not it's, even it's... at the end, though. That's like the third dare is her st- oh, is God. stirring, yeah. which is the problem with that sketch is it escalates way too quickly. Yeah, it, like, it, it reaches and it runs out of places to go by like the yeah. third dare. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's the kind of big screen version of like two girls, one cup. Like, curiosity <laughs> may get the better of you, but dude, seriously, you can't unsee movie forty-three. It's a fucking horror show. Yeah, so th- that one's our gets the crown for worst film of 2013 by a considerable margin. Yeah, yeah, it can't get much worse than that. So anyway, let's talk about some good films, um, and let's do the shot reverse shot best films of 2013 uh, list. We uh, picked 15 each. We uh, gave them all a kind of uh, mathematical weighting. We combined it together and kind of came up with a winner. Um, it's a surefire system that works every time. Um, and yeah we've done it and we've come up with a cracking list like I say it's a very good year this year um, and we're very very pleased with the 10 that we've got uh, so we're going to run through them now with you but first we need to hear for the very last time this year the uh, Shot Reverse Shot Top 10 Jingle Top 10 Right, cool let's get into it uh, first film uh, at number 10 um, uh, in our list uh, is the uh, Chan Wook Park film Stoker Richard Stoker was a family man taken from us by a cruel twist of fate the reasons for which are unknown 
India, come and say hello to your Uncle Charlie. Hello, India. I'm curious about what happened to my father. An immaculately uh, put together kind of uh, Hitchcockian thriller. Yeah, very Hitchcockian. It, it riffs heavily on Shadow of a Doubt, which is the film Hitchcock made in, I want to say, 1945, about a family where the, the creepy uncle comes to stay and there's a kind of vaguely pseudo-sexual relationship, uh, uh, threesome between him and, and the daughter, which uh, is not pseudo at all in Stoker. It's really <laughs> out there. It's, yep. Its subtext becomes text in mm-hmm. a very, very real way. Um, and you know, I think uh, Chan Woo Park. You know, he's done some great films. He obviously did First. Uh, he did Old Boy and Sympathy for Lady Ven. No, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Lady Vengeance. So he's someone who's basically spent a year making sort of immaculately constructed but very pulpy tales. And you know, this is kind of his English language debut, and he applies the same kind of tone, which is a very kind of uh, operatic sort of tone to very sort of pulpy and very earthy and very sort of very sexual and sort of grimy stories and uh, for me that combination is amazingly fun to watch mm. um, it is one of the most um, beautifully composed films I think I've seen of the year like er- literally every single uh, kind of shot and every single edit is so kind of intricately constructed there's a there's a kind of whole sequence where she's laying out her shoes in a in a kind of uh, uh, the, the kind of set of shoes she gets every year and she's laying them out in her bedroom and it's just this really kind of masterful um, uh, kind of bit of composition it's it's an absolutely beautiful film to look at and it's the score is fantastic yeah and there's an amazing sequence in it where uh, Mia Wajikowska and Matthew Good uh, play the piano together which I think is kind of the film in kind of miniature because it's this amazingly composed sequence, this beautiful music, but there's also this kind of roiling sort of sexual desire kind of playing out underneath it all. So you have the contrast between these very kind of lusty and earth earthy kind of desires and this kind of really kind of beautiful uh, music playing out and, you know, it all looks amazing and everything about that sequence is just the film kind of compressed. Um, except there it doesn't have uh, Nicole Kidman who is kind of giving one of the most insane performances of her career uh, but it's, it's, she, she's kind of uh, blew me away in that film because she hasn't really been trying in films for a while I don't think mm. and apart there, from the paperboy where she pisses uh, yes. on Zac Efron's face that's a good point she tries mm. it so she's got two, two films in a row where she's really trying yeah. uh, and in this one she's just so committing to kind of a wide eyed slightly mad kind of mother that it's it, it, the whole film kind of runs the risk of being over the top and I know a lot of people have taken against it for being over the top and for me it pulls back just the right amount to to be kind of lurid but still kind of classy enough not to be just kind of complete kind of pulpy rubbish but yeah a very very um, good film I saw it very early in the year it kind of came out kind of uh, kind of January February time over here um, but it kind of really did stay with me um, and yeah I think that's why it's in there um, number nine on our list is um, well a kind of a, a film that caught a fair bit of controversy earlier this year um, it's Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers I knew y'all special from the moment I saw you it's written on your faces I just have a really really bad feeling about this let's cause some trouble now Spring Break bitches 
there were a lot of films this year that seemed to be about uh, kind of of young people kind of seeking attainment in the American dream through violence or through crime. Uh, I think you can see that in Spring Breakers, you can see it in The Bling Ring, you can see it, you know, in, in Pain and Gain uh, to an extent. And I think there's of of those films, I think Spring Breakers is the one that most perfectly balances its kind of social critique with kind of visceral pleasures because it is a lot it is a very fun film to watch is, is Spring Breakers while mm. at the same time give, having this kind of sense of you know it's it, it's also kind of quite melancholy particularly when you get in sort of the, the second half of the film after they uh, perform Every Time by Britney Spears yeah. which is a, a moment that is insane and shouldn't work but is really affecting but you know like it's a it's a film that has these really weird mixture of like the opening where it's that Skrillex song which I grew to love over the course of the year just because uh, of its use in that film as kind of the, the leap motif where you know it's you have the scenes of just like sort of uh, tits flopping around and and uh, beer being poured liberally and then you also have you know just these moments of like real calm where Selena Gomez is talking to her grandmother about how she wants to be, it to be spring break forever and there's this sense of sort of a fleeting nature of youth that's all kind mm. of playing out there whilst also being this kind of crime story and having you know that James Franco performance which uh, I think is at the start of the year seemed to be being talked about as being a possible Oscar contender which seems to have died down now but seriously I'd much rather he got nominated for an Oscar for that than for 127 hours that's an amazing mm. performance it is demented that performance um, and like we talk about commitment in, in Nicole Kidman uh, he really does go the uh, the kind of the whole nine doesn't he Franco in, mm. in Spring Breakers uh, it's a film I'd say kind of caught in a bit of controversy because it kind of uh, starred these kind of uh, teen kind of clean cut starlets and kind of in well you know quite different roles but I mean that was just all bluster wasn't it yeah, I think so. I think that was just kind of people thinking, trying to be overly sort of, I don't know, overly moralistic about uh, something that I think in in some regards was, in terms of content, was fairly tame. The only mm. thing about it was that it didn't seem to pass over judgment on some of the things they were doing. Yeah. It more, it more kind of said, these are things that young people get up to, but also here is the logical kind of extension of having kind of too much of a focus on just pleasure and not really thinking about consequences will have eventually. Mm. Yeah, kids of today, bloody hell. And uh, another film that was good uh, this year, which is our number eight film, uh, was uh, probably like the one of the funniest straight ahead comedies in our list. Um, it was Edgar Wright's The World's End. I saw the boys the other day. Uh-huh. We're going to go back to Newton Haven. Why? Five guys, 12 pubs, 50 pints. 60 pints. Oh, steady on, you alky. This is our chance to finally finish what we started. <laughs> we are going to do the Golden Mile, and this time we are going to see it through to the bitter end. Or lager end. Uh, the last chapter of Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy. Um, fitting way to end it. I think so, yeah. I think it was... It, it kind of continued in the same vein as Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz because it was, you know, featured kind of uh, pop, riffs on sort of pop culture, on, uh, on genre films. Uh, it focused on kind of emotionally stunted uh, man-children 
that doesn't seem like a, there's not really a good plural of man child is there <laughs> no I don't think so yeah man childs no it doesn't work either yeah. um, man fence yeah um, and uh, you know he it it, it, it felt like a continuation but at the same time it was quite melancholy because um, I think it was kind of a realisation that Simon Pegg playing someone in his late 20s in uh, Shaun of the Dead who's not quite got his life together is you know you think okay that's fine people don't really necessarily figure out what to do with their lives when they're at that age uh, seeing him then do it as a guy who's pushing 40 in uh, The World's End just does come across quite sad and that is and and that's the point of the film it's not kind of you know when you see aging action stars still try to act young in in the world's end the whole point is you know you can't go home again mm. because it's infested with robots yeah i say it's um uh edgar wright's the action in that is impeccably good uh i think that either it's got a i did notice in the credits a, a fight choreographer kind of credited quite highly up um but yeah it's a um given that he does action quite well Edgar Wright he really kind of uh, pushes the envelope uh, in this one yeah I mean the bar fights in it bar fights are you know fairly uh, a kind of a cinematic staple you know there have been lots of bar fights in cinema most of them in, uh, in, in westerns mm-hmm. uh, but I, th- I felt he really uh, upped the ante in this one you know the various bar fights they're ni- they escalate nicely uh, from the, the first one where they're fighting them in the in the toilet cubicles uh, and the, the alien, the robots kind of come apart in their hands and then keep fighting up until the big brawl in the beehive, mm. which uh, has the great running joke of Gary King keep uh, trying to finish his pint and constantly getting interrupted <laughs> by people punching him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I would say if I was to have one criticism of the world's end, is that it's you know the pace is fairly relentless. And uh, towards the end, it kind of runs out of steam for me. Uh, the bit where we actually find out what's behind all the kind of robots, where we kind of, uh, well, we can add spoilers, where you know Bill Nye is the the kind of the voice and explains it, and then it just kind of ends, and then we have that kind of coda. It, it kind of just runs out of puff a little bit for me. Yeah, I think it kind of feels like, again, going back to Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead kind of has a similar sort of thing where. It ends with um, with Jessica Stevenson showing up and sort of rescuing him from the pub, and then you have that nice little coda of Sean and Liz in the house, and then mm. he goes out and Ed's in the shed and he's a zombie. Yeah. But it kind of, whereas that one was kind of light and funny, this one, it just kind of seems to get really spread out. Like the the, the film starts with kind of a ream of exposition, which uh, you know I think some people have, have criticised it for, but I think is is nice and it sh- it sets up a lot of the foreshadowing that you know Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg do a lot in their films um, really well and then it ends with just a ream of exposition but it's because it's not really building to anything it's less effective and you know it goes on for so long but I do like I've seen I've seen the film twice now I went once on my own and then I went once with my dad because he really wanted to see it um, and you know as a, as a former publican he really enjoyed all of the jokes about Starbucking and yeah. chain pubs um, and, uh, you know, I think the second time round, the ending didn't bother me quite as much. But the first time round, I was watching it, I was just thinking, what, what, what is going on? Wow, this, this ending is insane. Uh, but, you know, I think on second viewing, it didn't bother me quite so much. It did seem to resonate a bit with the, as being a film about the, the journey of Gary King and taking him to a sort of a, a logical conclusion where he can actually be happy. 
even if it requires the complete destruction of all life on Earth for him mm. to actually reach that point. Yeah. Um, do you think that like the work that was obviously begun with Spaced is now over, and Edgar Wright and Nick Frost and and Simon Pegg can go and move on to do other things? Because it certainly did feel like that to me. Yeah, it definitely felt like the end of that stage of their career. I think they've said they all want to work together again, but they all want to do something that's as far away from the stuff they have been doing as possible. Like, they don't want to do it that's just a riff on a pop culture theme, and they probably will focus on different characters. So I would like to see them work together again, but I hope that it's like they take a few years away and do their own projects, and they come back maybe with something a little different. And obviously... Edgar Wright's got Ant-Man due, which is probably going to be either a huge hit or a massive flop. It's kind of hard to judge at this point, but he seems to be sort of very busy, and I think it's just getting to the point where it's going to be harder for them to get together and work together. Mm. So it feels nice that if they don't work together again, they kind of thematically kind of capped it off nicely with The World's End. Yep. Uh, number seven on our list of the, the the best films of 2013, or our favourite films of 2013, is a film that literally only just qualifies, um, having like come out just in the the very start of the qualification period uh, for this list, uh, and that is Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. I like the way you die, boy. He is a rambunctious sword, ain't he? <laughs> What's your name? Django. The D is silent. Yeah, kind of very, very, very nearly did slip out of this list because you kind of forgot it was actually released in this period because it kind of just sneaks in um, at the the start. But um, yeah, a really, really strong effort from Mr. Tarantino. Who does know what he's doing? I'd say he does. Yeah. He knows what he's doing, does that does that man, and he knows how to put together a luridly entertaining uh, Western. Mm. And we just talked about um, The World's End and maybe running out of puff at the end. Uh, this is, we'll, we'll kind of, lay, before we talk about what's good about Django, I'd like to just get, a, like, something of a, uh, of a complaint that a lot of people have about Django Unchained, which I will kind of air now to get out of the way, is that the first 90 minutes of that film is a five-star movie. The last 20 minutes, I'm going to say it's probably a two-star movie, uh, which right. kind of stops it being bona fide Tarantino classic for me, uh, because, you know, once Mr. Tarantino himself turns up, and we, we know he's an actor of limited capability, but I can take him in Reservoir Dogs, I can take him in Pulp Fiction, but why did he do that in Django? Yeah, why did he show up with a ludicrous Australian accent uh, in a scene that completely stops the film dead? Yeah. In terms of its pacing. Because up until that point, like you say, it's a five-star movie, it rollicks along, and then it has this weird... I've seen it, uh, uh, the theory that because it references the uh, the, the, the German story of Brunhilde, um, that, that story has a similar structure, like the hero gets them close to finishing to reaching his goal and then he's kind of taken back and he has to go through it again uh, which is why it does have that little sort of detour and I can I can understand that as like the justification for why it's structured that way but at the same time I do think it it makes for a really lumpy and anticlimactic well not really anticlimactic because then it does end with him blowing the shit out of that house mm. 
which is quite entertaining. But yeah, that the the scene that kind of bridges those two of him being taken away, even though it does show that he's kind of grown as a character and he's learnt all of these tricks from uh, from Christoph Waltz, still it still feels off and it still feels like something that could have been dropped or that he could not have acted in. Yeah. Yeah. And it would have been better. But let's not be around the bush. The first 90 minutes of that film are absolutely electrifying. Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I both really like uh, Inglorious Bastard and it, and it feels like a continuation of that in a lot of ways, you know. It's a really propulsive and entertaining and really just ridiculously funny sort of riff on a, an established genre. Uh, and you know it also has the undercurrent of being sort of about slavery and you know and, and that sort of thing which uh, is perhaps not quite as important it, it, the film itself is not quite as important and Quentin Tarantino seemed to say it was um, when it came out but it still makes uh, for a really entertaining uh, examination of the issue and, and the legacy of slavery uh, without becoming either too light to kind of have no weight or too serious that you know all of the kind of really fun interaction between Jamie Foxx and Christoph Waltz looks insubstantial in comparison I mean you know that those two uh, Tarantino and Waltz are just such an amazing pairing you know I don't think he's ever found an actor who is so good at delivering his lines and making them sound not kind of really artificial which I think is something that he kind of struggles with in some of his other films in that one because of just the, the way he says it and that kind of really light German lilt he has and the way he slightly over-enunciates every, every word. You know, it just it just adds a little sort of kind of comic kick to everything he says. And uh, it was really it was really nice because in Inglourious Bastards, uh, he's so charming as Hans Lander. That you really just kind of you you kind of think ah oh, I really wish he wasn't an awful horrible person <laughs> and that I have to root against him whereas in this one it's like ah oh, finally I can root for the guy I find really charismatic and fun yeah 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 number six uh, on the list is a kind of a surprising entry that I I didn't think would make it to this list and mainly because it's a film we both saw at Dotfest and neither of us considered it to be even the best film we saw at Dotfest. We both liked it, we were both affected by it, but we didn't consider it the best, but I think I'll probably speak for both of us here. It has kind of stayed with us ever since, and I think we're seeing a big critical uh, response to that film. It's topped a lot of Film of the Year polls. Um, it is Joshua Oppenheimer's documentary, The Act of Killing. Born Has any other film this year quite kind of gotten under your skin as much as that? Because I know it hasn't for me. No, none none have got under my skin quite as much as uh, as that film. No scene has really affected me as much as the last scene of that film, where uh, Anwar Congo goes back to the place where he killed all those people and just starts retching mm. <laughs> uh, and seems to have this sudden realization of the horrible things that he's done. Um, and and no film has just kind of really just kind of occupied my mind quite as much as as that one. Um, just just in the sort of the way that it it, it it's it's really it's, it's it's a really hard film to talk about because there's so much going on in it. Yeah, for for the uninitiated, it's a documentary in which 
uh, explores what happened in the kind of is it Sumatran genocide, um, yes. and essentially this is a genocide that isn't kind of reassessed by the population of Indonesia. It's celebrated in the way that like people in England kind of get nostalgic about Top of the Pops. Uh, they show like bits where on mainstream television uh, they bring on. Um, Bring on the kind of perpetrators, the kind of mass murderers of the of the um, of of this kind of genocide, and they're kind of celebrated as kind of heroes, uh, and they're just gangsters. They're kind of just racketeers, and it's just uh, the film kind of does this kind of amazingly bold thing and asks the perpetrators of the genocide, who obviously are unrepentant and kind of you know are celebrated in their country, to reenact in any style they want the killings and the acts of killing uh, hence the title that they perpetrated and from that point it just gets fucking weird there's musical bits there's kind of horror bits there's cross dressing there's yeah it's it's so surreal uh but yet just kind of it's basically like being punched in the stomach for 2 hours in a good way. In a good way, yeah. I mean, I think as we said on the Dotfest podcast that after I saw it, I went for a burrito and I just kind of sat on my own and kind of just wanted to cry a lot. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of, yeah, it was really hard to watch. Um, but yeah, it really has kind of haunted me since. Yeah, and it's amazing just how much it manages to do because on one level it's, you know, a very specific commentary about these guys in this specific country, but... You know, if you think about it, I think most civilizations have that in their history. You know, I think, you know, America has it with its uh, the way it lionizes sort of cowboys and the pioneers and, you know, and kind of ignores or sub- subsumes the fact that for America to, ex- to exist, millions of Native Americans had to die to bring it back to the Lone Ranger from earlier on. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I think that uh, England certainly has it, you know, our colonial history and the, the thing that that's unique about the act of killing is that um, it forces the people who carry these things out to reassess it in their own lifetime. Whereas I think with like the, with the the Western and with the, you know the colonialism, we have reassessed them after the fact and realised they probably weren't very good things to do. <laughs> and, but it's too late to kind of make amends or to really ask those people. You know, what did you think? You know, what were you doing? Whereas here you see the people. Uh, who carried out these horrible things being legitimately unrepentant and thinking that what they did was good except for Anwar Congo who through the course of the film starts to re- to talk about the fact he has doubts and he has kind of a realisation to quote uh, that Mitchell and Webb look, uh, are we the baddies? Mm. Uh, you know, he kind of has that realisation that he uh, was probably a monster and uh, that that is something that's really fascinating to watch play out and you know, in over the course of a documentary. Yeah, I mean, I've got kind of... Uh, I think that'll be a strong contender for documentary at the Oscars. I think it's really caught on. I mean, uh, I think it's the ICA in London have played that... Um, have played the act of killing for three and a half months continuously, which is crazy for a documentary. Yeah, and I think it's a testament to the impact that it has on people that once you see it, it's one of those films that you feel you have to talk about. Yeah, and you have to you tell people you have to see not because you know something like Blackfish, which has kind of been a cause celeb, uh, because you know lots of people 
have been to SeaWorld and now they're just kind of being going, oh, it's so terrible, you know, all these things that have been going on. You know, uh, the act of Cong- the act of Congo, the act of killing, mm. even, you know, it, it goes far beyond that to just kind of say, you know, look at the terrible things that people are capable of and, you know, look at what happens when someone is forced to confront that fact. You know, it really does get under your skin because it makes you reassess what you think about humanity, really. Yeah, which is... Uh... Well, more than movie 43 makes you do. <laughs> um, uh, the next film on our list, we're into the top five now, is Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. Ah! Astronaut is off-structured. Dr. Stone is off-structured. Ah! Dr. Stone's detached. You must detach. Don't detach that arm's going to carry you too far. Listen to my voice. You need to focus. I'm losing visual of you. In a few seconds, I won't be able to drag you. Now, in terms of uh, kind of action spectacle mixed with kind of survivalist character drama, yeah, it was probably pretty good. Gravity. Yeah, I'd say so. It's. Uh, I mean, this was one of those films that I was really looking forward to, pretty much throughout the year. But really, I've been looking forward to it for about four or five years, ever since it was announced that you know Alfonso Cuarón wanted to do a, a movie set in space with only two characters. Mm. I just kind of thought, well, that sounds very intriguing um, because I'm a big fan of sort of anything that really pairs down cinema to its basics and even though Gravity is you know it's obviously a very elaborate effects heavy film you know it's got some jaw dropping special effects that were absolutely amazing to see in 3D you know I don't watch many 3D films but I thought everything I heard about it made me think this I have to see in 3D I have to appreciate the spectacle you know as it was meant to be seen um and it really worked, you know, unlike most some 3D spectacle, which tends to be quite empty. But at, it, at its heart, it's, you know, a very simple story of survival with this kind of very elaborate uh, framework around it. Mm. Uh, Sandra Bullock really does um, steal that film, although it's kind of hers to take after Clooney uh, leaves the film. Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. Um, do you think she'll be a contender come Oscar time? Or do you think the film's going to be way laden with the fact that it's an effects movie rather than anything else I think she'll probably get a nomination because she's kind of a favourite and she's had a good year between that and The Heat which you know was another big hit for her mm-hmm. um, so I think that she'll probably have a chance at it I don't think that she'll win I think that you know it seems like Kate Blanchett will probably win this year for Blue Jasmine but I think that she'll be recognised because you know Gravity has been a big hit and it's a, a big critical favourite and it's done really well at the box office so I think it'll be like you know Avatar or something it'll get loads or or, um, it'll be like Titanic it'll be a film that gets lots of awards across the board and you know at at least one of them for acting I don't think that uh, Clooney will get best supporting because he doesn't really do a huge amount in it no Uh, and and I don't think the Academy like him quite that much. Yeah. But I think that she'd be in with a good shot at, um, at acting. Also because, like you say, she's the only person on screen. And I think that that has a lot of weight for it. In much the same way that uh, Robert Redford in All Is Lost. You know, he's the only guy on screen for the whole of that film. Mm. So I think yeah, they have to shoulder so much that they, that gets quite a lot of appreciation. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's not, it wasn't a particularly hard day at the office for Clooney, was it? He didn't really stretch himself <laughs> dramatically. He just played George Clooney in a spacesuit. Yeah, and then just kind of floats off. Mm, yeah. 
Probably, probably for a martini, I would imagine. <laughs> um, next film on our list, uh, another science fiction film, I guess. Uh, a film that we we kind of flagged at the start of the year as one that we were looking forward to, um, and it didn't didn't disappoint. Uh, we are going to talk about our number four film, which is Shane Carruth's bizarre and beautiful upstream colour. Do you know this place? I want to say yes. Cold in there, just cold in there. For you, I want to. I haven't slept at all. Is there, is there a direction that you feel drawn? I'm gonna go wherever you go. Yeah, um, yeah, breathtaking film. Yeah, I mean, I, I had to watch it. I watched it again this week just because, uh, in my kind of listing of the year, it slipped down a bit just because I'd seen more films and you know they were fresher in my mind. And uh, I want I watched it again, and uh, I had much the same experience that I did the first time round, which is I was kind of overwhelmed by it. Yeah, definitely, uh, it's a very hard film to kind of, unlike Primer, which was a film that whose plot was so ludicrously complex that you needed a chart to kind of figure out what was happening. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the various charts people have put together about the plot of Primer, it still hurts my head, and I still don't really understand it. Yeah. Um, the plot of Upstream Colour is fairly linear. I mean, you can't necessarily say why certain things are happening, but, you know, you say, okay, this young girl gets implanted with some sort of mind control worm, and that is part of a bigger life cycle, and then there's another guy who's had the same thing happen to him, and they form a, a relationship, and it's kind of about that. But, you know, I think it's it's a film that has a very linear kind of plot, but I think emotionally it's so hard to kind of uh, unpack mm. everything that's going on in that film. It has such a... this kind of raw, kind of almost subverbal emotionality about it, you know, in the use of music and sound and just the way it's constructed in the editing, that it's it's kind of... it's 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 a weird combination of being both abstract yet hugely kind of engaging yeah and it it really does kind of cement the fact that Shane Carruth is a major major talent in the sense that I mean he's he's he acts in it he wrote it he directed it he edited it he shot it he is the that he wrote the score I believe and I mean he did that mm. on Prime and you thought well okay he's you know he's, he's made a film for what was it like seven grand or something you know he's he's got to do that because you know there ain't, you ain't got too many. You ain't got the resource, but he takes it on again, and and like, I'm I'm just kind of like in awe of how he's managed to do that and and keep control of it, in, in the sense that that film is is a vision of someone who clearly has uh, complete control over everything in just his second film, and like I'm just kind of wondering where he goes from here. Does he? take another five six years off and then just do another very low budgeted film that he has complete control over or is anyone willing to give him a bit more money and a bit and, a, and some freedom to take a take a risk and would people would a wider audience be interested in seeing that well hopefully i mean the way he released it was interesting as well because he kind of self-distributed it you know he put it out in a few uh, theaters and uh, he, he sold it through the web for his own website on Blu-ray, and I think he sees the vast majority of the profits. Mm. So I think even if no one gives him a bigger budget, I think he may have the resources to pursue something himself. Yeah. Um, I know that he had a project called Atopiary, which was a film he was 
trying to get off the ground for years, which kind of kept falling apart, which I think is the film he wants to make next, and I think Upstream Colour has made it slightly easier for him to move ahead with that, but uh, whether or not it actually happens again or he has to abandon it, uh, it remains to be seen, but you know, I hope I would really hope that this kind of is the kind of breakthrough moment for him because, like, you know, Primer was such a distinct and unique work, and this is another one that you know kind of builds on what he was doing in that film, but you know, goes even further with it and is even more of a kind of a personal vision. Um, that you know, I, I just really hope he can just keep making films, even if we have to wait kind of. Uh, sort of nine years between them yeah. you know if they're all as kind of jaw dropping as primer and upstream colour then you know I think it's worth the wait mm. yeah yeah I concur um, into the top three now um, to the serious end of the uh, of the, the best of list um, a film that like we were probably unlikely to not enjoy given how big a fans we are of the first two films in this uh, rarest of beasts a perfect trilogy it's Richard Linklater's Before Midnight and how did you two meet? we met about 18 years ago we kind of sort of fell in love and a decade later we ran into each other no 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 you wrote a book and I read about it and went to look for it it's pretty romantic um we knew what we were going to well we, we kind of knew what we were expecting um, and didn't disappoint did it? No I think it was like, like we were talking about with The World's End it, it felt like a natural continuation of the first two films you know it was in style it was uh, these two characters that we've grown to know over the over the years just kind of walking around and talking to each other and you know having these conversations about love and philosophy but it also kind of uh, explored their relationship in new ways. You know, it showed them as parents, which obviously we oh, I hadn't seen them in the first two because in the first they're both single, and second they're both uh, coming off of sort of relationships that are failing. Uh, and here they're parents with two kids, and then you also see them as a couple having a real kind of knockdown fight that takes up the last sort of half an hour of the film, mm. which. Uh, I think a lot. I think it turned a lot of people off the film in some ways because you know you go to the first two films for the light, fun, romantic comedy elements of it, uh, and then before midnight, kind of completely turns that on its ear by saying, "No, you're going to watch these people have a real fight, like what real couples have." Yeah, and it's it's so true as well. That fight is kind of so grueling and realistic of how actual couples fight. Um, it's really kind of hard to watch and it's a really interesting film uh, Before Midnight because we've seen the first two films but in both cases uh, they're um, they haven't seen each other for a long time so like the first first film they just meet and it's a day, their day of their, their you know they, they meet and they spend a day together the second film they meet after having not seen each other since the first time and then the third film They've been married. Not, are they married? I can't remember. Or are they just living together? They're, they're not. They're not married, but they live together. Yeah, live uh, together, have kids, and and you know. So we we get an, an actual whole. Uh, there's 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 backstory in there that needs to come through, and there's also it feels a little kind of different from the other films in that we have a big scene with other characters. They have a big dinner scene, don't they? And in those bits, the film doesn't work quite as well as it's when it's those two. But when it's just those two, it's just like you know spending time with old friends yeah and you know the, the the dinner scene also kind of feels more like it's there to underline a point 
in terms of like contrasting their relationship with the relationship with the young couple. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think the other films are great because they don't they don't really feel like they have to belabor that point. Uh, you know, in, in the second film, they don't have to kind of place them in a situation where you're just undermining, underlining how these people have changed. It just emerges naturally. Whereas I think there, it kind of feels more, uh, more schematic and more forced. I mean, I still quite like that scene. I do think there's a lot of fun conversations in there, but those two have got such amazing natural chemistry together that when you add other people to it, it starts to feel a bit off. Mm. Yeah. But that's the only real false note in the whole film. The whole film is just such a wonderful exploration of a, a relationship that's been going on for so long and that we as an audience have been following for so long even though we've only seen like three days in the lives of these two people but we really feel as if we've got to know them in that time yeah uh, perfect trilogy do you think I'd say so yeah I think all three of them each film kind of feels like it completes the previous film in the series mm-hmm. like I don't think anyone was really kind of clamouring for a sequel to Before Sunrise uh, I think some people probably were worried about it because they didn't want to know what happened to them after they left Yeah. Um, but you know Before Sunset came along and it was just such a wonderfully poignant look at what had happened to those two people and in retrospect it kind of coloured and changed the opinion of the first film because you suddenly know what happened to them and suddenly it casts it in a different light mm-hmm. and then this one does exactly the same thing to the previous two and I think that it doesn't feel like they're just releasing these films and sort of chasing and doing the same thing over again. Each one builds on and creates a sense that it's a complete story. Uh, and, you know, I think that's rare. I can only think that and Toy Story are the only trilogies that actually do that well. Yeah. No, I, I concur. I concur. Um, yeah, so that was number three. Uh, number two in our list, um, a film uh, that I've seen the most recently out of all of these um the film is our only foreign language entry which is unless you can't count the act of killing I'm not going to um <laughs> the film blue is the warmest color I'll be honest, Ed. Uh, this film had me in absolute bits when I saw it. Um, <laughs> I was uh, weeping quite openly by the end of that film. Um, uh, uh, ostensibly, it's, it's a kind of a three-hour uh, coming of coming of age story, and w- without doubt, the best comic book adaptation of the year. Um, <laughs> a three-hour uh, is it a French film or is it a Belgian film? I think it's. Yeah, it's a French film, three-hour French film, uh, coming of age story of a young girl who is kind of discovering her sexuality, um, and that's it. But it is the most absorbing uh, kind of uh, visualization of that that you, you could probably imagine. And at the, at the heart of it is a absolutely stunning central performance by someone who's only about twenty years old. Yes, Adele. <laughs> Ex Archopolis. Yeah, it's easy for you to say. <laughs> but I, I, I went to the effort of learning how to spell her name for writing my review of it because uh, I feel that she's going to be. I hope that she's going to be a major talent mm. for much the same reason that I learned how to spell Chiwetel Ejiofor's name after watching Serenity. Mm. It was just kind of like this guy's going to go places. I hope because I really want to <laughs> not have wasted uh, the effort of learning how to spell his name. <laughs> um, 
but uh, you know she's she's amazing. I think it's it's a brilliant film about you know the the com- coming of age and of sexual discovery. I think it's a it's just a great film. I think about being a teenager. Mm-hmm. I think it's a film that beautifully captures the kind of the bigness of being being young and in love. Like every emotion in that film is writ large. You know, it's felt very deeply, but it's not kind of it's not kind of over the top. You know, it feels very real, but also very. Uh, expressive. It's got the same sort of, you know, that we talk often about Magnolia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has a similar quality to Magnolia in that Magnolia is a film where every character really feels every emotion very deeply. Yeah. And that's the same sense I got in uh, in uh, Blue is the Warmest Colour, except, you know, the focus is really only on sort of two characters for the entire running time. Uh, and that, that kind of makes it, it's, it's, it's both intimate, yeah, it's also you know this really epic exploration of one girl's kind of this this kind of formative relationship that's clearly going to uh, affect her entire life going forward it also feels like it deals with the passing of time incredibly well and it kind of mm. starts i mean the opening shot of the film is adele basically running and being late for a school bus and then kind of without it making too much of a show of it by the end of the film she's a qualified teacher she's got a job and an apartment and and like this film was shot with a the actress must have been 19 maybe when she mm. she filmed this 18 19 and it was you know filmed over a couple of months and the kind of just that the acting to pull that off as being kind of like that first love thing to being a kind of an adult but still struggling with that was just amazing um, I also found like you know we probably can't talk about blue is the warmest colour as much as I'd want to uh, without mentioning the kind of explicit sexual nature of it. Um, a brouhaha has been around, but I'd just like to say it's just people being squeamish at the fact that they're lesbians. Yeah, I think there is that. I mean, the the only the only other thing that you know there's that video of uh, of lesbians watching it and then kind of commenting on it on the sex scenes uh, saying that it kind of is a little bit um, acrobatic mm-hmm. I would say in places and a little over the top but you know the way I kind of uh, took those was I kind of thought they were very kind of expressive you know they're kind of ways of uh, really illustrating the kind the, the way in which their relationship changes over time Yeah. particularly that first sex scene you know it's just so uh, so over the top, and you know, so many positions, <laughs> and you know, just really, really gets into it. Yeah, they run the gamut. Uh, yeah, uh, but it's really, it's really trying to express just kind of the, the overwhelming kind of excitement, and you know, the the, de- the desire to discover of being in love for the first time, and sort of the beginning of a relationship, and then as the film goes along, and you see the different, you know, there's only a handful of other sex scenes. They all have a different kind of. You know, tenor to them. They're all different, and they become sort of more kind of more loving than just explicit um, as the film goes along. And you know, I think that they they serve in in my my review of it. I said they serve much the same purpose that like the dance and the song and dance sequences do in uh, Singing in the Rain. Mm. They're there to express what the characters are feeling. Yeah, uh, they are also a little bit there for kind of uh, for purient purposes. Um, it's hard, to, you know. You have, they are very hot sex scenes. It's, you know, you can't really get around it. Mm. But I think that people who just focus only on that, are, you know, are trying to make them seem more lurid than they actually are, and they kind of miss the the broader point of why they're in the film. Yeah, I think that like I'd much rather see that as an expression of female sexuality than having 
you know, Michael Bay introducing his female characters with upskirt shots. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, the, the the thing with with uh, with uh, blue is the warmest color is that it shows them as people first, and then and you know shows them the the beginnings of the relationship of them just kind of sitting and talking on the bench and talking about literature, and you kind of see the growing attraction there before it gets to the sexuality. You know, the sexuality is obviously underpinning their chemistry in that scene, but like it's that's kind of the undercurrent. It's not treating them as sexual objects. Uh, uh, instead of people mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, an absolutely beautiful film and like I said uh, yeah it had me in bits and yeah absolutely love that film and I expect it to be there or thereabouts come award season now we're down to the last one it's our best film of the year our favourite film of the year uh, it's going to join the uh, the hallowed ranks of uh, our previous awards winners uh, which you know these we picked uh, the artist two years ago as our favorite film of the year and last year we pitched picked uh, searching for sugar man as our favorite film of the year um and obviously those those are the two highest accolades those films received um <laughs> and this year we bestow that honor upon our favorite film of the year which is noah baumbach's francis ha tell me the story of us again we are going to take over the world You'll be this awesome publishing mogul. And you'll be this famous modern dancer. Um, we love, and you know, we have a shared love of Greta Gerwig. Uh, it's probably fair to say. Um, by golly, now I hope everyone loves her after this. Yeah, she is absolutely amazing in this film. I think this is the best uh, expression of her kind of. Uh, personality and her kind of attributes as a, an actress that she's had so far you know she's really funny she's really awkward and weird um at times uh she's got a great physicality about her certainly in the dance scenes in the film um but i think it's just like like uh, blue is the warmest color it's just a wonderful expression of of youth uh and particularly you know an exploration of kind of the aimlessness of being sort of a, someone in their 20s who doesn't hasn't quite figured it out yet mm. Yeah, uh, which is is the sort of thing that can be very navel gazy, but I think uh, uh, Greg Erwick and Noah Baumbach really express it in a way that is kind of really vibrant and alive. Yeah, there, there was when I, I started watching it, um, I was kind of slightly concerned that I thought, well, hang on, we've we've got a film about kind of privileged, uh, kind of Upper West Side uh, hipsters, basically. Uh, I, am I going to go for this? I mean, what can be said that hasn't already been said by, uh, you know, kind of scores of of similar films and girls and you know, uh, what is it really that that this is going to add? But it, you know, it's the kind of once upon a time in the West of films about privileged Upper West Side people struggling <laughs> with their futures. It's the film that encapsulates everything that those other films were trying to say and just does it so perfectly and it's all focused through the most utterly charming turn by Greta Gerwig in anyone else's hands that character would have been absolutely insufferable um, but she is the the hero of the year for me yeah and I also think you know I think you and I are fairly down on the term mumblecore mm. not necessarily the films you know we think that there's lots of really good stuff in that genre but the term itself is is kind of lazy horror yeah lazy and horrible and is used kind of more as a pejorative than as an actual way to describe films but i think it's interesting as kind of being 
about a similar sort of subject matter to those films because those films are all not all but mostly they were about like 20 somethings who haven't quite figured it out but uh, this one because you know it's shot in beautiful black and white and it's all very composed and you know everything's shot really beautifully it has this nice uh, this nice kind of contrast between the kind of fuzziness of the story and just how sharply everything is shot uh, in a similar sense you know it, it, it kind of tips its hat to a lot of uh, new French New Wave films, and those kind of have a similar quality to them as well. You know, it looks beautiful, but the story itself is, you know, all about someone who's just kind of, kind of tumbling through life and kind of doesn't have anything to kind of hold on to. Yeah, I liked it when um, someone said that Blue Jasmine was the second best Woody Allen film released this year, <laughs> and I think that <laughs> that's quite. I mean, it's you know a bit of kind of uh, snarky journalism, but. Um, you know, Baumbach really is moving into that territory, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's definitely in terms of um, certainly the the scene of her at the sort of the dinner party, mm. just kind of being awkward and talking to people and trying to make jokes. That felt very Woody Allen esque. Yeah, uh, it felt like something you would see in Manhattan or or Annie Hall, where someone is somewhere where they kind of don't want to be but have to be, so they just end up making fun of everyone there. <laughs> And making them feel horribly uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I've been at several dinner parties like that, but didn't quite come <laughs> out of it with the same grace and style that, that Frances does. And she doesn't. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I'm, you know, really pleased that Frances Ha is getting um, getting uh, kind of named in uh, all these kind of end-of-year lists. I don't think I've seen an end-of-year list so far that doesn't include it. I, I think it's really nice to see um, a kind of an indie film, I guess, and not one that's a really obvious indie crossover doing so well yeah it's not a film that kind of you feel has made concessions or uh, is really watered down to appeal to a mass audience mm. uh, it's not that it's like it's not uh, you know inscrutable like upstream colour or anything you know it's not a really kind of it is a very kind of accessible story but it, it also doesn't feel as if it's making any concessions to anyone it's very much the film it's meant to be it's not kind of pretending to be something else or trying to be super kind of mainstream with slight indie inflections mm. yeah it generally has a kind of a three-spirited vibe to it yes that it does um and so concludes our look at 2013 um that top 10 is incredibly strong and you know some of the films we we kind of couldn't include like behind the candelabra the great beauty uh Blanca Neves. Is that how you say it? I think it's Blanca Neves. Blanca Neves. Uh, yeah, watch that. That's great. The Way Way Back, Stories We Tell, Short Term 12, Blue Jasmine, This Is The End. Uh, Side Effects was really good. Even Iron Man 3 I enjoyed an awful lot. There was lots and lots of films this year that were really great. And, you know, the coming up with 10 was hard, but I think we cracked a pretty good list there. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of 2013 as a year. Yeah, well think, done, 2013. Take a year off. It did us proud. Mm, yeah, um, this is our last uh, podcast of the year, um, and uh, our next episode, by coincidence or design, who knows, uh, is our 50th episode, and uh, we'll be um, kicking that off in 2014, um, and we're starting a year-long project, um, which we're very excited about. Um, and yeah we think it's uh, worth doing because we're amazed that we've got to 50 episodes um, and yeah I mean is there anything you want to say to round off this year Ed? 
Uh, I'd just like to thank everyone for listening. We've had another good year in terms of listeners. We've had more than last year, and most of the ones who listened last year have stuck around, so that's always a good sign. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, I'd like to thank you, uh, Joe, for you know continuing to do the podcast with me and to put up with my uh, and editing my kind of weird verbal rants. No, that's all right. Um, that's good. Thanks, thanks for giving uh, me your verbal rants. I've got, I've got <laughs> hours and hours of cut out rants that we could, uh, we could throw in. in a That'll s- be our smile sessions. We'll put them out when everything's kind of dried up. Yeah, yeah. We still won't be able to, like, kind of uh, rescue the long Kevin Smith rant that I went on in one of our lost casts. We lost due to technical problems. Uh, I think, I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll probably find opportunity to rant about Kevin Smith again yeah yeah we'll set it up Um, so yeah thank you everyone for listening Uh, and yeah we'll be back in 2014 Um, and until then it's goodbye from me goodbye from me and goodbye from me